ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Coronavirus podcast, Captain's Log, episode 528. Hello, Norman. Hello. And, and we just found out we've got a call sign. This is like some emergency signal that we can send out to the world. What is our call sign, Norman? CVP. We have had some correspondence, Norman, from someone who was listening last week when I was asking you about your mask-wearing habits and you said that you still carry around a packet of N95 masks in your little backpack. And Stephen has <laughs> emailed in saying, I think he's quite tickled by the idea of you having a little backpack. Uh, Stephen's curious about what else you might have close to hand in your little backpack just in case. Oh. Were you a Boy Scout and do you carry a raincoat and a torch? <laughs> no, look, sometimes I wish I carried a raincoat and a torch. It's a very personal question to ask what I carry in my backpack. <laughs> but I carry, um, the, the most important thing probably I carry in my backpack, apart from my laptop, are lactase tablets. Because <laughs> I'm lactose intolerant and, in or, and I love dairy. So I've got to have lactase tablets that I chew before I have dairy. Otherwise, my life is a misery. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm glad that lactase uh, tablets were invented for you, Norman, because as a fellow dairy lover, I just can't imagine a life without it. Yeah, so that takes up a huge amount in my back, backpack, but not a lot of weight. Well, let us now turn our, turn our minds to Coronacast, the show all about the coronavirus, often other nasties as well. I am health reporter Tegan Taylor coming to you from Jagera and Turrbal Land. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan coming to you from Gadigal Land, part of the Eora Nation. So, Norman, today we're going to talk about one of the most unsettling and little understood parts of the pandemic. I'm talking about long COVID. It's something that we've talked about a lot recently. And you have been out as an intrepid reporter this week, talking to people who are actively researching long COVID, uh, attending a conference of those people just the last few days. Yes, last Friday in Melbourne, there was... I think it, I've done a Google on it, and I think it is the first conference solely devoted in Australia to uh, long COVID. I think the Victorians thought that, but Victorians think that anyway. So this is bringing together the research, the experience, and the lived experience with long COVID. So there are a lot of people in the room who were living with long COVID, and they were telling their stories, and very moving stories they were too, of people really quite disabled by their symptoms and their life changed by it. And so the question was, what do we know? What proportion of people who get COVID develop long COVID symptoms? And, um, and, what, and what's the science telling us that uh, could help explain what's going on and perhaps develop better treatments? So before we go too, fur too much further, can we just define long COVID? Because it is a little bit of an amorphous term. It is. And, it's the, and the definition is amorphous. It's uh, the World Health Organization definition is persistent symptoms of any kind after three months. So that's pretty broad. Other people in other parts of the world have tried to narrow it down, but essentially um, it's an inclusive description that people define it for themselves in a sense by persistent symptoms after three months. Now, nobody wants persistent symptoms over three months, so nobody's going to invent this. This is real. And how bad are the symptoms? Like, you know, you could have a runny nose or a cough, which is annoying and, you know, no one wants that. But on the other end of the spectrum, we've heard anecdotally of people with incredibly debilitating symptoms. Well, before I get there, why don't I give you some of the, they did a survey of 12,668 people mm. who'd been infected with COVID going back to 2020. And so they've got six month groups of people within this survey. 
to see what proportion of people develop COVID-19. And then we can talk about the symptoms attached to that. Yeah. And they had a control group of people who hadn't had COVID. And very few surveys of this kind of control groups. Everybody's looking just at groups of people with COVID. So what they found was that if you averaged the percentage of people who'd had COVID in this group of nearly 13,000 people, it was 14.2% or thereabouts um, on average over the last three years. But when you broke down that by time, if you go back to between January, the first six, you know, between January 2020 and May 2021, your chances of developing persistent symptoms after, and by the way, the, the technical term these days is post-acute sequelae of COVID-19, PASC. But anyway, 25% of people near the beginning of this pandemic developed uh, persistent symptoms. Then it slowly has gone down. So in the second half of 2021, it was 21.6%. Then January through March 2022 was 14.5%. And these days, it's just a little over 11%. That is really interesting to me because we talked before about the fact that your risk of long COVID might uh, compound with every infection, but this that feels like it's going in the other direction. Yes, it, it is. And it could be for, although they didn't look at the effect of repeated infection, or at least they didn't report it as part of this survey. Um, it's probably a combination of factors going on here. One is vaccination. So at the beginning, there was no vaccination available and or it was only just getting going. And vaccination for COVID-19 does significantly reduce, and that's well known from around the world, reduce your chances of developing persistent symptoms quite dramatically. And then you've got a change of variants. The variants have changed over this period of time, and Omicron is reportedly less likely to produce persistent symptoms than previous versions of the variants of the virus. Although that in itself is, is, is controversial because Omicron is not necessarily a mild virus. And then there are antivirals. Uh, and antivirals almost certainly also reduce the chances of developing long COVID. Now, the other interesting feature of this is that we've talked about it often on Coronacast, is that severe disease increases your risk of persistent symptoms, which is true. But when you look at this population-based sample of large numbers of people in the community only 8% had reported having received hospital care for acute COVID. Most people had mild to moderate disease. So severity, whilst if you've got severe disease, you're at risk, but when you look at the population as a whole, the bulk of people developing long COVID have not had severe disease. And then you think, well, this is, one, this is a, a problem for the elderly. Well, 40% of people who had persistent symptoms in this sample were aged between 40 and 59. So turning a lot of assumptions on its head there. It is. Now, if these numbers are right, then there could be, just in Victoria alone, 400,000 people with persistent symptoms from, um, from long COVID. So as part of this study, is there any more clarity on how to treat it and how long it lasts for, whether people kind of come out the other side of it? People do get better from it. That's more from other research. This wasn't, if you like, what's called a longitudinal study following these people for three years at a time. It was a cross-sectional study of a point in time. So recovery is, is hard to determine from this, from this study. Um, what also was found was that one in four people said their lives had been affected by it. 
So there is research going on. We've talked about it. The Kirby Institute in Sydney has found immune abnormalities. They were confirmed in many ways by presentation at the at the conference that may give a clue to new treatments that might affect the immune system. But essentially, the the treatment is from what's called a multidisciplinary team. So you need somebody. If you look at the symptoms that people are getting brain fog, feeling fatigued, feeling physically weak, breathlessness on exertion, increased incidence of migraine, insomnia. Those were the commonest features. And remember, this is not one disease. It's not one com- one problem. It's probably several problems. One group of people who've got mostly brain problems, another group of people who've got organ damage to their, um, to their heart, to their kidneys and so on, and a third group who have a mixed picture. For example, a significant percentage of people have depression and anxiety. Now, that could be because they had it before COVID came along. It could be that they're you know, feeling low because they've got persistent symptoms, or it could be that, that long COVID itself is causing brain inflammation, and that's causing the psychological effects. So you need a clinical psychologist, you need an exercise physiologist to get you back into exercise, because if you go too fast, you can really put yourself back. So it's got to be graded exercise, pacing yourself back into exercise, and so on. And this requires a team. Now, most people in this sample were seeing the GP for it. They weren't actually going to other specialists in the system. And general practice is not well equipped to deal with this. And then another person that you were speaking to at the conference, uh, this long COVID conference you were at, was talking about uh, a different way of preventing a COVID you know, virus from taking hold in your body than a vaccine. This is something we've talked about a little bit before, nasal sprays to prevent against COVID. Yeah, and we get a lot of questions about them. And this is Professor Don Campbell, who's Professor of Medicine at Monash, who's doing a randomised trial into heparin spray. So I spoke to him about the trial because he's recruiting, for people to, recruiting people to take part and also talked to him about other nasal sprays and how they might work. We're conducting the intranasal heparin trial, inherit trial, to determine whether or not the application of intranasal heparin within households where one person is COVID positive and other members are currently COVID negative can reduce the transmission of COVID within the household. And the theory behind it is? That heparin will competitively inhibit the interaction between the protein spike of the COVID virus and the receptor binding domain on the nasal epithelial cells for the COVID-19 virus. It doesn't affect your blood clotting, which is really what people mostly know heparin for. Yes, heparin has been widely used intravenously as an anticoagulant for 80 years. It's the second most widely used drug on earth. It's safe and the intranasal application is associated with no risk that you will alter the clotting profile of the blood. And you've been sticking this up your nose for a while? Uh, Yes, I have. I've been uh, using heparin two puffs three times a day via a nasal spray since May 2020, and at that rate, I think I'm up around one and a half litres of heparin in my nose. Have you had COVID in this time? I have not had COVID. I haven't had the cold. I haven't had RSV, and I haven't had influenza. So you think it'll actually work against other respiratory viruses? We have very good evidence that it's equally effective against other coronaviruses and RSV and influenza. And so you're wanting people to volunteer for the trial? Yes, we want to recruit people within ideally within 24, but up to 72 hours from when their rat test turned positive and where we have another household family member and they live in metropolitan Melbourne. And if they want to get in touch? 
They can contact us at inherit.study at nh.org.au, but the simplest way is to Google intranasal heparin and we'll come up number one. Our wonderful nurse, Madonna, will come and visit the person at the home and will give them their spray and it'll either be an active drug, which is heparin, or a placebo, which is saline, and we'll get them to do uh, nasal swabs over the 10 days that they take the heparin. Now, there's other nasal sprays around, particularly ones that are not prescribed. Is there any evidence for them? Yes, there's Enovid, which is in Israel, and that's a nitric oxide spray. There's an intranasal carrageenan spray, and carrageenan is seaweed, and heparin and carrageenan are cousins. So it's not just sticking anything up your nose. Saline doesn't work. There's a reasonable chance that sticking saline up your nose might also work. And there's a risk to the validity of our trial that the placebo might also be active. So hopefully people will actually get in touch. Thank you very much. So that's Professor Don Campbell who's pioneering this research into heparin-based nasal sprays and that's probably all we've got time for on today's Coronacast, Norman. Yeah, keep your nose wet till next time. (laughs) See you next week.